Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Chris Savenny. Uh, Chris has developed over $750 million in real estate and built a note investing portfolio valued over $12 million. So thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. Thanks, Charles, for having me. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing great. It's awesome that we were able to connect. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. And again, thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about your uh, background, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in real estate development, investing, and note investing. Yeah. So my background kind of started in real estate. In reality, uh, I went to college for civil engineering uh, back in the mid-90s. And when I got out of college, I started working for a large commercial general contractor in the air, in the Boston area. So that's kind of was my introduction to real estate. I always loved real estate and it was a passion of mine. And uh, after I graduated college, I worked for them for about 15 years uh, up in Boston, then 10 years, and then moved down to Washington, D.C. And after that, uh, got burnt out, uh, working many long days and weekends. Uh, I flipped, uh, as in the construction world, to what they call the dark side. And the dark side was going to work for a developer. So I made that switch um, over to a developer. And once I made that switch, the people I was working for were much more entrepreneurial. And they, a lot of them had, you know, rentals and other properties. And this was right around the time of 2012, 13, where the market was slowly starting to, you know, turn around. So my wife and I, uh, we built our primary residence. And then after that, we had a good amount of equity. So we started buying some rentals. Uh, the challenge we had with that was uh, two kids, my wife and I both working full, full-time jobs. So we couldn't really scale that. And also Washington DC area is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing uh, was uh, not, you know, after a few rentals, basically just stopping, you know, not having any more rentals. And then what we did, uh, I came across uh, note investing, which honestly, I'd never heard of um, at the time. So most people who were listening may not even have heard of note investing. So I wanted to kind of bring that to light to people because it's a very niche industry and niche market that most people aren't even aware of. And uh, that's kind of, I started five years ago, got the ball rolling. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that uh, as we move on this episode. Okay, awesome. So explain a little bit about note investing. What types of properties are you financing? Are you generating the notes or purchasing them on a secondary market? Yeah, so we purchase them on the secondary market. Uh, we typically don't generate or create the note in most instances. And there's a lot of people out there who do that private money lending, where they'll do it for typically, you'll see that on fix and flip deals or other type of deals, because you don't do it on primary residences because of all the government regulations mm -hmm. that are involved. Now, on the flip side, we're on the secondary market where we are buying a lot of those single family uh, residential first position notes is where we invest. So we have to really put together a strong team uh, in place to make sure we stay in compliance with all the state and federal regulations. Okay. So these properties are not, are, I mean, these properties, they might actually have someone that is uh, the homeowner that you're, uh, they might actually, they're not just a flip property. Is that correct? Someone? Yeah. I would say 95% oh, okay. of them are single family owner occupied 
or you know the other five percent is most likely people use it as a rental property okay awesome yeah because i mean for the returns when i was reviewing your website and we can go, go over the returns here but mm -hmm. uh the returns are very high and that was something that uh if you want to explain how you're getting these high returns and what the returns uh, you can expect yeah so when you're buying most people are like well why are you buying notes and typically what we're doing is we're buying non-performing notes meaning borrowers who are not paying so that lends the question of why would you buy a note when somebody's not paying on it? Uh, it's the same thing of why you buy a house that needs lots of repairs. Uh, you buy it at a substantial discount. Uh, we try and buy loans typically on average between you know, 30 and 60 cents on a dollar when they're not performing. And that's completely dependent on the state it's in, the property condition, the property value, how long it's been delinquent. And most people, I just want to mention this too, when you think like I have a mortgage and a lot of people who are listening probably do, you think you miss one payment, like somebody's going to come knocking down your door and tearing you out of the property. Um, most of these borrowers are borrowers who have not paid, um, not months, but years. Yeah. So, and the big institutions and hedge funds don't do a lot with them because a lot of times it might be a dollars $40,000 asset that for them, they're managing $300,000, $400,000 assets because the costs are the same. It costs the same to foreclose. doesn't matter what the loan value is. So a lot of times these just get pushed away and they look to sell them, which is what allows them to get be bought at a discount. So what is your, uh, what is the business plan with it? You're obviously buying these at a discount, which is fantastic. Uh, there's value there then because uh, you're buying them distressed. And you're buying them from people that don't want to deal with them because mm -hmm. uh, they have huge portfolios and it makes perfect sense. It's not their business and mm -hmm. it's your business. So what is your business plan from taking on? Are you going to make, are you going to get these people back on track and how are you exiting the notes? Yeah. So typically, you know, our primary goal is to try and get the borrowers reperforming and get them back on track. You know, our goal isn't to go in foreclose and take the property back. Uh, we try and work with the borrowers when they want to play ball. You know, there's only so much you can do if a borrower is not responsive. Yeah, it's got to work both ways. Mm -hmm. But typically, we like to keep borrowers in uh, their properties. I mean, we have a whole podcast talking about doing the good deeds of keeping people in their property. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, for us, that's what, you know, part of how we operate. But also, just to be flat out honest with most piece, most people, if you can get them reperforming and get them on new payment stream, and whether it's lowering the payment or pushing some of the late charges and past due interest to the end of the loan, um, it tends to be more profitable at the end of the day. So it's a win-win for both people where they get to stay in their property, which today's world probably has equity in it. Um, you work the agreements with them. And then if you can get that on a consecutive payment stream for 12 plus months, you can turn around and sell that loan to somebody as another investor, maybe in a performing fashion, or you might be selling it to them at 75 to 80 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see some of the, the math numbers there. So the industry is like a 12 month seasoning process. That was my next question. That's yeah, it. typically, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I go by 12 months, the standard is 12 months, but people try and change those standards. Some people will be like, well, it was paying before COVID, so it's still performing. And it's like, well, the money's not coming in the door, so it's not <laughs> performing. Uh, some people will think it's a month or three months, uh, but for us, typically, uh, we like to go off of 12 months uh, because that shows some consistency. Interesting, okay. And, uh, and then you're putting this back out onto another market to sell it after 
this uh, this process after this 12 months like we just talked about. Is that correct? Yeah, we've yeah, we've found a very nice niche that we're in where you know we typically will buy 30 to 60 assets at a time. So we can that's considered somewhat bulk, not really, but we get a discount for buying that much at a time where we'll buy from some of those larger hedge funds. Uh, and then we'll buy those. And once we get them worked out, there's a lot of investors out there who like to buy ones, we call them onesie twosies, you know, one-offs here and there, especially people who have self-directed IRAs because of uh, the way, uh, you, know, you know, your deferred taxes and with notes, there is really no tax benefit because it's actually ordinary income. If you're using your own cash, it's actually probably a disadvantage, but on conventional real estate, you get the depreciation tax benefits, which if it's in your IRA, you don't get that. So you might as well use your IRA for items that don't provide any tax benefit and use your other cash for real estate, which is what I do and what a lot of people do. Um, so we find a lot of selling those assets off to investors uh, who like to buy one, one or two here and there. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So um, what is for the, you know, you're, the people that you're uh, that these mortgages for the properties that they're in, I mean, you're getting these high returns. Is the returns what is a typical? What are they paying for these mortgages, and why are they having a note that's being sold off? Obviously, if it's not performing, but what are the rates that they're usually paying on this? Is it lower? Do they go through some sort of? Is it just a normal person that went through a normal conventional mortgage and then yeah. again, or is it seller financing that's now being sold off or? It's a mix. Most okay. of the loans we see are between uh, five and nine percent. Oh, so wow. they're higher than what most of us think of. Of okay, you get three percent, three and a half percent. You know, a lot of these were originated back, you know, 2010, 12, 13, when rates were a little higher. But also, a lot of them are borrowers who have had questionable credit, so they may have gone a non-QM route or some other means to get a loan. So we typically see a little higher interest rate, uh, which is, you know, includes when you discount it as well and get them paying again, it again, increases yeah. those returns, which you mentioned returns. And, you know, we target for every non-performing loan to hit, get around a 30% return on those is what oh, our wow. target is. Uh, if it's a performing loan we're looking to buy, you can buy those between 10 and 12%, um, eight to 12%, depending on, you know, the situation in the state, of course, uh, because some states are much riskier because if at default, there's a lot more legal expenses mm -hmm. and foreclosure timeframes. But, you know, that's our target, I'd say overall in our portfolio, um, you know, our historical returns average somewhere in the mid 20s. Now I just going to make stipulation that, you know, past performance is not yeah. an indicator of future performance. <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of where we've been at. though. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. The SEC disclaimer, everybody has that. <laughs> yeah. um, before we get into your funds, because I'm very interested in learning about them as well. And the, what is the process? So you take a non-performing loan. I imagine you have a whole team for this that, I mean, what is the process for you? I imagine you try to make contact with them and then where's it go from there over and how many months does it normally take to get them performing again? And uh, if you're able to, and how does that whole process work? What you're doing on your side after you've acquired the note? Yeah. So I'll even go a little bit rewind because it's mm -hmm. very different. And I'll talk about even buying a note because when you actually bid on a note, it's you're typically bidding on the asset blind and you're not spending money. You'll get a list of assets called the tape and you'll bid based off the information that's on that 
tape and I'll do some research online and maybe look at like Google Street View and you know spend probably 20, 30 minutes bidding on an asset. And then if it gets under agreement, that's when you'll receive all the collateral, which is all the loan files from that uh, current lender. And then I'll order a title report to check on title and if there's taxes owed, uh, because most people aren't paying the mortgage, not paying their taxes. And then we send somebody by the property to take photos of it, which you don't get to see the inside of the property. You know, you're a lender, you know, your lender comes knocking on your door, you don't just let them in, uh, especially if you weren't paying. So it's kind of done by on a handshake deal. And that's what I wanted to mention, because it's kind of a back and forth by email and stuff of, hey, we're agreed, then you finalize, negotiate the price, then you sign the loan sale agreement, you wire the money and boom, you bought a note. Uh, so the process though, is you rush, rush, rush through that process, which takes about two to three weeks. And then you have to sit and wait. And the reason why is, uh, you have to hire a licensed servicer and that's the company that actually collects all the payments, does all the reach out, calls the borrower for you. And once you buy the loan, you know, it takes about a month for the servicing companies. If you're using a different one to transfer all that data, you know, from all the past history, make sure it's in their system properly. Cause the last thing you want is it to be put in improperly. And so that's about a month. And then once they get that squared away, they send a letter saying, Hey, you have a new lender. Here's where you send your payments. And Oh, by the way, if you don't, dis- if you disagree that you owe this money, you have 30 days mm-hmm. to dispute it. So you're basically just now waiting another 30 days um, for that process to happen. Now, typically, so that's 60 days after you've bought the loan. So after that, then if there's been, you know, they can still call and, you know, reach out to them and so forth to, you know, ask them, you know, if they want to start making payments and so forth. Um, But then typically at that point in time, um, if there's been no communication, that's when we'll get an attorney involved and we'll have attorneys send what's called the demand letter, which is a letter demanding payment. Uh, And that typically is what starts to get people to wake them up. You know, some people just see a letter, they throw it in trash, oh, it's somebody else, you know, whatever. Uh, Once you see something from, you know, law offices of ABC, uh, typically that's when they'll start to wake up and you'll try and work something out with them. Uh, And if that doesn't happen, 30 days go by or 45, depending on the state. And then that's where you can file a legal complaint which is, you know, you file that, you know, with the courts, um, if it's a judicial state, but you file, you know, basically the start the foreclosure action. And in many instances, they get served either by a sheriff or by, um, you know, somebody to hand them the documents that they have to sign for. If they didn't jump at the first instance, now they're typically is when you get them back in play, uh, because now they're like, oh, this person's serious. So, but then, you know, you'll still, I mean, go back and forth for another month or two. So on average, it'll probably take about six months to, you know, get something worked out uh, with a, with a borrower. Interesting. And what kind of percentage, I'm not sure if you mentioned it earlier, you said uh, that you usually are able to perform, have them perform again. Yeah. If it's a owner occupied single family residence that, you know, like I said, it's occupied, um, tip it's above 50%. I'd say it's probably, oh, wow. it's close to about 75%. Now there's, you know, when we're buying 30 or 40 at a time, there's some that might be vacant or, you know, I'm, I'm taking away the ones that the borrower has, is deceased and things like that, because, you know, those, you know, what the outcome is going to be, but it's around 75% of, you know, the loans where somebody is owner occupied 
in the property, uh, you know, we work something out. And those other 25, honestly, it's uh, in many instances, they just never respond to anything. And we've got almost no choice or no option. Interesting. So what kind of states do you like working in and buying notes in that make it easier for a note investor? <sighs> so it's interesting because like, you know, some people love Ohio and I joke, I said, Ohio stands for only headaches in Ohio <laughs> um, is the acronym. Uh, you know, the Southeast uh, typically is, you know, areas uh, we like Tennessee, Missouri, uh, uh, the Carolinas, Georgia. Uh, I, I like investing in those states because one, home prices continue to appreciate. People are moving to those areas uh, as well as their foreclosure laws are um, not you know, extremely burdensome. Uh, you know, you get up into the Northeast, which mm -hmm. is where I'm from originally. You know, New York, you're looking at years to foreclose. Georgia, it's like 45 days. So it's <laughs> such a, you know, a, an interesting difference uh, from that perspective. But typically most of, I mean, I've invested in 35 states, but the majority of them are in the, uh, the Rust Belt and down yeah. into that Southeast. Yeah. So Midwest, Mid-South, Southeast, landlord-friendly yeah. states, I guess you would say. Yeah, um, pretty much. From what we're saying. Yeah. I'm from Connecticut. So I know <laughs> I know how it works up there. I still have rental property for years up there. So uh, I know all, all the headaches and everything that goes with that wonderful place. Um, so talk about those different funds. You have a couple open-ended note funds uh, to mm -hmm. incredit investors. Obviously, that's why we're talking returns here because you can do so. Yep. And then you have partial notes too. So if you don't mind mm -hmm. kind of explaining what they are and uh, mm -hmm. how they work. Yeah. So the two funds we have, one is a performing note fund, which we just buy performing notes and we offer investors uh, preferred returns between eight and 12% uh, preferred return based on the investment that they put in. Uh, there's no management fee in those funds or anything. It's a straight, um, you know, we, you know, our income is made off of, you know, the difference between what we buy the, the note from and what the preferred return is. So uh, from that, you know, investors get a interest payment every month based on which pref pref they're in. So it's nice that you know just get that monthly check, or you can reinvest it. Uh, and it's only a one year, uh, you know, one year whole time on that for an investor. So you know, it's something if you want to put cash away for a year to see what's going on with the markets and so forth. It's a nice little uh, niche uh, from one aspect. Uh, the other fund we have called the Integrity uh, Mortgage Note Fund. That one's a three-year hold where that one's going to be primarily more non-performing loans. And that one, uh, the preferred returns start at 7%, but we're also offering 25% uh, upside to the investors. Now, I know people who invest in multifamily look at them from, and they're like, oh, well, you know, typically it's the other way around where, uh, you know, the sponsor gives away most of the preferred return. And I'll be honest, we don't try and compete with the multifamily. Uh, because a lot of those are five to seven year hold times, but also with the fees that, you know, once you get property management fees and all these other fees involved, you know, you pay a lot in fees that end up, hurt, you know, diminishing that bottom line a little bit um, that goes back sometimes to sponsor or their affiliate companies. Uh, so you can't really judge them because it's two, even though it's real estate, it's two different market sectors. Um, so, you know, in, in that fund, uh, you know, we target investors, uh, you know, we're looking to get them 11 to 15% returns uh, per year uh, is what we look to get investors on that. And then partials, this one's interesting because this one typically uh, confuses people a little bit. Um, 
And what a partial is, is say I have a, uh, a loan that has 100 payments left on it. Uh, I can basically bifurcate it um, or hypothecate it where, you know, Charles, I'll sell you 50 payments. So basically, but you're secured by that collateral. So you, it's basically taking that first position loan and putting you in position 1A and I'm in position 1B. Um, so the first, and I manage it and basically send you the next 50 payments. And there's an amortization table based off of 9% that you'll get, you know, a principal and interest payment based off of 9% based on what you invested over a period of time, which is typically four to seven years that gets paid back to you. So it's almost like, you know, the, bar, the borrower is essentially paying you. And on those, uh, you know, I take on all the risk um, if, it goes not, if it goes delinquent, um, meaning that I have to go out of pocket my costs, that investor's not out of pocket any cost. I've done um, over 60 of these and it only once has a borrower um, failed, you know, stopped performing, which uh, we ended up foreclosing and the investor actually just got their money back um, and got paid uh, from that perspective. So they, you know, got their returns as they had promised. So it's, you know, what I would consider probably, you know, the lowest risk because you're getting your principal and interest back. Uh, but, it, you know, it's over a four to six year period that, uh, you know, the performing note fund also, uh, in you know, my perspective is less riskier, of course, there's always risk uh, in any investment, uh, then, you know, the non-performing fund, of course, you know, higher returns does have a little higher risk, but, you know, these are, those two are my fourth and fifth fund. We've got uh, one of them. My first fund is wrapping up uh, next few months, which has done very well. And the other two funds we've operated uh, again, have performed very similar, and we expect to hit the returns uh, to the investors that um, we've stated and which I've stated uh, early, which is that 11 to 15% to those investors. Interesting. And this is paid, you said one was a monthly, is another one paid uh, quarterly? Or? Quarterly, yep. Okay. And, you know, similar to most uh, funds, if, you know, there's a quarter, like the first quarter is sometimes questionable because of that mm -hmm. period I said yeah. of buying and getting thing locked up. If you miss that first quarter, um, basically you're still owed it. It's not as if oh. it just goes, you know, goes away um, from that perspective. So, uh, and then, and then the excess, you know, at the end of the year, the CPA does the books and says, "Hey, there was this much extra profit um, that will in that integrity fund that gets, uh, you know, distributed to the, uh, you know, gets split up to the investors as well." So on the real estate uh, investing side of it, not the debt side, let's say on the equity side, what we yep. really kind of focus on, it's obviously very competitive. How is it with note investing? Is it very competitive as well right now? And uh, how has COVID changed your business? So it's not as competitive as other real estate industries by any means. Uh, there's a lot less people involved in this because there's a lot of work and a lot of people don't want to deal sometimes with the hassle of lawyers and a borrower getting attorney. Uh, you kind of have to have a certain personality to deal with that. Uh, thankfully, I do uh, based on my background. So, I mean, it's competitive, of course, but not nearly as competitive as, you know, trying to do fix and flips or buy and holds at this point in time uh, by any, any means. Uh, in COVID, it's been interesting. Uh, I've had... On my performing loans, less than a 5% default rate on COVID from COVID related. Uh, and in the same token, I've also had more borrowers last year who refinanced and paid off the loans. So actually it was a, oh. you know, 
was actually a better year for us because yes, we did have some people go delinquent, but we also had others um, come through. The other thing that's been beneficial is, uh, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Association is uh, a nonprofit that gets state money and they assist people who have missed their payments to get them caught up. So wow. people who have missed payments, even if it was before COVID, they've stepped in and helped these borrowers to get them caught up. So we've been able to, you know, benefit from those as well. And it again goes to show when you try and work with people, because sometimes, you know, with those agreements, you may have to lower the payment or even lower the interest rate, uh, which at the end of the day, you drop an interest rate, you know, by, you know, two points, uh, you know, Yes. Does it impact the bottom line? Yes, but not that great of a bottom line. And it's not that impactful. And it's actually, when you look at it, you're getting that person to continue to pay, which you don't know if they could on that prior rate. So it's just, it's just a win-win, um, you know, all, all the way around. Yes. Yeah, same thing with uh, real estate with apartments. And during COVID, we weren't raising rents on renewals and it's better to have someone in there paying versus mm -hmm. someone, you know, versus a vacant unit. And that's two months done and all, the whole story that goes along with that. So uh, interesting, very interesting. Uh, I know I, I've spoken to other note investors individually, and I imagine you you do as well. Like, what mistakes do you commonly see other real estate note investors make? You know the the three, you know the three main the three biggest risks in note investing are taxes, title, and property condition. And I see. Time and again, people trying to take shortcuts or not spend the money to order the title report or check on the taxes or send somebody out to the property. Uh, those are the three biggest things that I see. Uh, and the other is people getting into it too early. Uh, people will go take you know, a weekend seminar, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, just like in real, any aspect, real estate, uh, stocks, you know, they have these weekend courses you can go take that give you an overview and they make it sound like it's really good really easy and really profitable. And they say, follow these five steps and you start on Monday, you follow these five steps and these people start bidding on assets. And the reality of it is they have no idea what they're doing. And I've seen, you know, time and again, uh, the one other thing I'll mention is, and this goes for all aspects of real estate, is if you're going to partner with somebody, whether you're the sponsor or you're the equity partner, whatever it is, you know, don't just take somebody's word for it. You know, if, you know, Charles says, Hey, Chris is a great guy, you know, because I was on a podcast, um, you know, make sure that you do a background check on that person and check their references, you know, and then ask that person, well, you're referring him. Have you actually worked with him? Oh no, but I've had a beer with him and he's a good guy. Well, aunt, that's not good enough. Um, I've seen far too many people in this business uh, follow somebody's recommendation like that and then get burned. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I was, I, there's a person I recommended to a few people and then found out, you know, later on, this person ended up having a lot of issues. And then basically now those people got burned, um, in the note space and it's a very small space. So, and, you know, people in the note space probably know who, who it is, but it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, it's something that, you just want to make sure that you do a proper check on somebody um, in from that perspective. 
Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. The um, the <laughs> so the the thing with uh, let's talk about title issues before we wrap up here because it's very interesting. Obviously, title issues would be additional liens on the property that you probably haven't noticed. But is there anything else? Are any of these? These are all first position. Yep. Is there any second position that you ever find, or what are the big problems? Or obviously, a red flag would be anything that comes up that doesn't isn't clean other than that lien. But what what are normal things you find issues with uh, titles? Uh, taxes. Uh, taxes. The other is uh, if a family member who was on the loan deceased and it didn't go through probate or, mm. you know, then they just were like, oh, we'll just quit claim deed, you know, and somebody's elderly, they just quit claim deed to another family member and they pass away. But, you know, the quit claim deeds really, you know, worthless, <laughs> um, you know, in many instances, uh, from that perspective, uh, I've got one right now that, uh, you know, we were looking at where uh, there's just so many title issues because they kept transferring this thing back oh. and forth. Uh, the other is sometimes title companies make a mistake where I've had some where they had to record multiple documents at once. They record them out of order uh, from you know certain perspectives. So that's some others. Uh, but yeah, typically it's typically liens uh, is what you will see the liens and the taxes. Uh, and you know also what you got to check is in certain states there's a county tax, there's like, you know, Pennsylvania, there's a county tax, a school tax, a local tax, there's mm. all these other taxes. And if you are using a title company or just trying to check them on your own, you know, because some people do that and you just make the phone call, you're not checking the other one. Well, if the school tax is, you know, $3,000, but the, this, the local tax is only 500 bucks. And it's like, oh, it's only 500 bucks or a thousand bucks past due. They missed two years and you missed the other 6,000 taxes. Yeah. Um, and what is people, again, sometimes people just go cheap and they tell the title company, mm -hmm. oh, don't take the taxes. I'll check it myself. And it's an extra 30 bucks and 30 bucks on a $30,000 investment really is, you know, unwise yeah. and not spend that money. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of great information. So what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Ooh, uh, I, you know, for me, it's, uh, inconsistent consistency of, you know, people, you know, you know, start with something and they hit a little bump in the road and they stop, you know, one of the things that I'm horrible at is trying to stay in shape where, you know, my gym is literally right over there. Um, you know, I've got it and it's like, Oh, I'll go two days a week. Then something will happen. I'll miss two days. Ah, then I'll miss two weeks. And it's, you know, trying to, you know, get back in the swing of things. So that's one thing I mentioned people is consistency. And the other thing is, in a business, you know, you do have to spend money to make money. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things that you really from to reducing your risk, uh, for example, you know, working with a good title company, working with good attorneys, you're going to pay a little bit more, but you're also reducing your risk. And then you build uh, those relationships and larger companies typically use the better attorneys. And all of a sudden, when I'm using the same attorney and somehow I get introduced to um, another company or somebody else, all of a sudden it's, you know, hey, I can start buying from this person or something along those lines. So networking, uh, when you're using good vendors, uh, can lead to much better and bigger relationships. Yeah. No, that's one thing when I talk to new investors, uh, mainly in like the real estate equity part portion of it, and uh, they don't want to invest a little bit of money in getting stuff set up correctly. And, you know, there's all this potential to make money, but people don't want to, a lot of people don't want to spend money and they're, you know, spending money here, but not where it really counts. So yeah, uh, it's interesting, but okay, perfect. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? 
Yep. So they can go to my website, which is uh, 7E Investments, but it's a number seven, the letter E, then the word investments.com uh, is the best way uh, on there. You can contact and reach out to me uh, and learn more about the investment opportunities we have. Uh, if you're interested in more notes, uh, we have the Good Deeds Note Investing Podcast that uh, we launch a show weekly. And you know, I enjoy it because that's where I tell the stories uh, that we go through with borrowers and lessons learned. And sometimes it's a vent fest where, you know, I'm just, you know, upset and just venting about something that's happened. Uh, but it's really telling the true life story of it, because again, it goes away from the weekend warrior courses where everything makes things simple to try and yeah. tell that story. Uh, and then another place to learn is if you're on Facebook, we have a group called notes, not nuts, notes and bolts from the good deeds Don't investing podcast. So those are the three places I typically, uh, you know, can be found uh, pretty easily. Awesome. Well, thank you so much in coming on and uh, letting our listeners learn about another route of making money through real estate. And uh, I'll put all those links into our show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you, Charles, for having me. Talk to you soon. Yep. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.